we're going to continue a study that we began several weeks ago of this book called The Exit, because Exodus means exit, and it's subtitled A Journey to Freedom, because that's what this book is about. It's about God leading his people from bondage or slavery in Egypt into freedom and toward the land of their promise. And we've been talking about how those of us who have found ourselves in a, in a kind of spiritual bondage or slavery where something be, besides God has a grip on our lives and we find ourselves in a loop of not being able to escape the grip of that thing. God wants to set us free just as he did the people of Israel from Egypt. And in fact, the Bible says in, in the New Testament, it says we're supposed to see the events that recorded for us in the book of Exodus as examples of what God wants to do in our lives. So this book exists for us to see that there's a God in heaven who wants to set you and me free and lead us on a journey of sustained freedom and experiencing everything that he intended for us. <clears throat> and I need oh, my... I I need my, uh, my gadget. <clears throat> and uh, so that's what we're doing. And um, I've asked you to turn to chapter 17 of the book of Exodus because we're going to read about there the first battle that the children of Israel will actually be uh, involved in uh, fighting themselves. Now, God, when I say it that way, I mean because... The people have just experienced, they've been through a battle that God waged on their behalf. He overcame bondage on their behalf. He broke the back of the Egyptian slavery that they were under with 10 powerful plagues. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. God battled for them and won their release and their freedom. Now, they're going to be engaged in warfare, and they are going to be actually <clears throat> drawing their swords and fighting against an enemy. And it's very important and very significant for our own lives. Paul the Apostle, writing in Romans 7, and we've talked about this many times in the course of this study, but I, it's important for me to reestablish it now. Paul said, giving his, either his own testimony or or capturing something that we all that is common to us all, how we feel about these things. He said this. He said, the things I want to do, the things I long to do, I don't do. In my heart, I want to, he said this, he said, in my heart, I want to live according to the word of God. I want to honor God with my life, but I don't. He said, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I'm always doing. And then he said, who will deliver me from this death? He described it as a form of death. That kind, and he's giving us a definition of spiritual bondage. Where I am not free. I'm, I'm held, I'm restrained from living the life God intended for me to live. And I'm pressed in to living a life that's contrary to that. That's bondage. And no matter how hard you work at it, no matter how much uh, you know, personal effort uh, you know, addressing habits and so forth. No matter, no matter how much self-change you seek to initiate, you cannot break bondage, spiritual bondage, on your own. Just as surely as the children of Israel could not escape slavery on their own, it requires God. God is the one who liberates us from bondage. 
And in the course of this study, we've talked about how you get to that place of bondage that Paul described as a form of death or dying. <laughs> in James chapter 1, verse 14, it says we're tempted because there are desires that are being appealed to by our enemy. Desires, needs that we have that the, that the enemy of our souls, the devil, Satan, appeals to with the offer of a counterfeit solution to the, to the meeting of that need or that desire. That's how it begins. That's what James says. We're tempted when we're drawn away by our desires. When we embrace that temptation, it says it brings, it conceives sin. And when sin is left to gestate, it brings forth Death, the condition that Paul describes as bondage. That's how it proceeds from temptation through this process to bondage. Now, bondage, as I've already said, is something only God can break. Deliverance, being set free from this bondage, it has two parts to it. First is something only God can do. He's the one who liberates us from bondage. And thank God he does. Thank God he does. That'd be a good place for an amen or something. Thank God that he does. But phase two is living in the freedom that God brings us into. And that requires a lot of me. Responding to God with obedience. Learning to relate to him and, and um, follow his his word, that, that requires something of me. Phase two, the children of Israel now in phase two of deliverance and they're coming against a battle that they will wage. Not alone, as you'll see. But they will be engaged in the battle. And it has to do with temptation. It has to do with the battle against temptation, resisting temptation so that it doesn't progress down this pathway to bondage. We are free. God has set us free from bondage. Now we stop temptation here. And the thing is, when you're in bondage, you lose control of the gate. And it's like, whatever, come on in, do whatever you want to do to me, right? But when you're freed, when deliverance comes, we regain control of the gate to our souls in the name of Jesus. And there we resist temptation. That's the battle that's talked about here. I want you to See that with me. And before, uh, well, let's go ahead and read it, starting at verse 8. Now, Amalek, that's um, a, a nation. They're called the Amalekites. Amalek came and fought with Israel in a place called Rephidim. Rephidim is a place where the people of uh, Israel have taken uh, refuge. God has caused, um, they, they come there thirsty because they've not been able to find water and the Lord brings water out of a rock and quenches their thirst at this place of refuge they're attacked by the Amalekites and Moses said to Joshua that's Moses his kind of right hand man or protege choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Remember what the rod of God is? It was a shepherd's staff that Moses had that when he had the initial encounter with God at the burning bush where God said, I'm going to send you to my people who are slaves in Egypt. I'm going to use you to set them free. And he re required of Moses that he lay down that shepherd's staff. And when Moses took it back up again, from there on, it's always referred to as the, right of, as the rod of God. No longer 
the, the identity of a shepherd. No longer, but a symbol of the power of God. He says to Joshua, you gather some men and go fight this enemy. I'm going to go up on the hill with the rod of God. Verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Those are two other men. Aaron was Moses' brother and another prominent man in the, in the uh, assembly of the Israelites. Moses, Aaron, and Hur. They went up to the hill. Verse 11, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. So when Moses held up his hand, the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites went in favor of the Israelites. <clears throat> when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. The, the tide of the battle would change. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. God says to Moses, Moses, I want this written down, what I'm about to tell you. I want it recorded for posterity. I want you to make sure Joshua understands this. And then he says what he wants recorded. I will, God says, I will Utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You're going to find out why God says this. It's not just that he's picking on these people. <clears throat> I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Behold, the Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, with that in the background, let's talk about a few things. We're going to be talking today about winning the war within. I've already, talked, or I've already said that that has to do with the battle we all face with temptation. Temptation is not sin, by the way. Anybody here not been tempted? Come on. We all are tempted daily, if not moment by moment. Come on. But that temptation is not sin. That's the enemy presenting to us the potential or the possibility for sin. But there's a battle that's critical at that point. Critical at that point. We have an enemy. <clears throat> and the one who comes to take advantage of those moments when we're tempted, uh, 1 Peter describes in chapter 5, verse 8, this way. Listen up. This is what the Bible says. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, there's no ambiguity about who we're talking about here. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's kind of like, I mean, you know, in a very crude way, you know, on the, the internet, there are constant. Um, attempts to exploit vulnerabilities in, in technology. Constant. There's a constant pressing against every um, device out there to see what vulnerabilities can be exploited so that hackers can do their stuff, right? Constant. It's like that with us. There is a constant press of the enemy. He's, he's like a roaring lion seeking vulnerabilities. He's trying to find a place where he can 
find someone who's vulnerable, someone who he can devour. The good news is that that means that there are some of us who are not devourable. I want to be one of those. How about you? Let's be those who are not devourable. And this lesson today from, from the book of Exodus chapter 17 is all about becoming that. It says, be sober, be vigilant. Those two things are very important to take note of. Well, sober, as you might imagine, would be sharp-minded, right? Have your wits about you with regard to this. Don't be lax or uh, don't take for granted that, you know, temptation is no big thing. He says, be sober. But it would be wrong for me not to mention the fact that it literally means don't be intoxicated. And sometimes a lot of us think that the worst thing that can happen as a result of intoxication is that you get a DUI. I want to tell you there's far more important things that can happen as you surrender your sharpness. You have an adversary who will take advantage of that. You think you're just partying. He's got other plans. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be on the lookout. Keep your guard up. Be aware of this. There is an adversary who wants to ruin your life. We have an enemy and he is despicable. There it is. Okay. He looks a lot worse than that guy there. <clears throat> But he also has a strategy. And it's defined for us in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and I've already talked about that. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. I've already talked about that. His strategy is to appeal to the needs and desires that you have. And some of those, he's, to appeal to them with an alternative, a counterfeit, ungodly answer to that need. What are some of the ways that he tempts us? Well, he tempts us to be unforgiving. Someone's done something that's very hurtful to you, extremely hurtful. I don't mean lightweight. Somebody's done something extremely hurtful to you. The temptation will be Harbor that unforgiveness. Hold that person in unforgiveness. Make them pay. That's a form of temptation. There's a need that you have that's been generated by this wound, this hurt that this person has done uh, to you. There will be a temptation to handle that in an ungodly way. There is a way to handle that. Need needs to be handled. It needs to be dealt with but in a godly way, offering forgiveness, which is so counterintuitive, and yet it brings such peace and healing and everything that God would intend in that situation. We are tempted to violate God's uh, instructions concerning our sexuality. Why? Because there's a need there, and, and we uh, choose to be, or we can choose to, uh, to bite the apple, so to speak, of the enemy's proposal that you deal with that need this way. There's a lot of us who could say or could testify today that that leads to lots and lots and lots of heartache. <clears throat> God has another plan, a better way, a godly way. 
We could go on and on about the forms of temptation that we all face. Temptations to overeat, overspend. Temptations to be lazy. Temptations to be... There's a myriad of things that we could say. But it's all based on those needs that we have. And his strategy is to exploit those needs and, and to and, uh, cause us to reject God's proposal for how those needs should be met for the sake of what he has to offer. Now, the Amalekites are representatives in the Bible all the way through it of the temptation or the desires of the flesh that are being tempted. Those things, those needs, those desires that you have, they're being tempted. They are represented <clears throat> by the Amalekites. And here's why. Some of you would know this, and others, uh, this might be new to you. Either way, let me refresh your memory. In Genesis chapter 25, we're told about uh, an incident that occurred between two brothers, Esau and Jacob. Now, Abraham, their grandfather, was the father of the Jewish people. He, his um, progeny were, are the Jewish people. Abraham had one son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the one through whom the Israelites descended. He had 12 sons. They were the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob had a brother, Esau. Jacob was kind of a homebody. He was, you know, he's good at cooking and kind of a mama's boy. Uh, Esau was the opposite of that. The Bible says he was a man of the field. He was a hunter and he was out there, you know, doing what those kind of guys do. Anyway, <clears throat> Esau comes in from a long day of hunting. He's starving. He's, he's uh, hungry. And his brother has just made this uh, very wonderfully uh, smelling soup or stew. And Esau says, hey, I, am, I have a need. I am hungry. Can I have some of your stew? Jacob says, okay, but you got to give me your birthright. Now, for us, we really can't relate to what that was, but it was Far more than just, because Esau was the firstborn, it was, he had the birthright. But it had far, it, it dealt with far more than just the inheritance of properties and wealth. When his father passed on, it, had, it was a very spiritual thing. It had to do with the blessing of God that would be conferred upon him by his father as his father passed away. It was his right to that spiritual blessing. And in that moment, Esau says, I'm going to trade away this very important spiritual birthright that I have. I'm going to trade it away for the satisfying of my fleshly needs. So he says, okay, I'll, give me the stew. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And so throughout the whole Bible, they are representative of the lusts and desires of the flesh that people are willing to trade their spiritual well-being for the satisfying of. You with me? And so that's why God says, I'm going to take them out. I'm going to obliterate the Amalekites. This is not something you play with. This is something you defeat and crush utterly. You don't give any ground to this. You don't play with this. <clears throat> So that's his strategy. The enemy wants to use the desires or lusts of our flesh. 
wants to exploit them, tempting us at that point that we will trade away our spiritual birthright for what amounts to a bowl of soup. Now, he has some tactics. Our enemy, he's not, uh, he's not just playing as he goes. He has a strategy, excuse me, he has tactics that he uses to accomplish his strategy. Deuteronomy chapter 25, looking back on what we read in Exodus chapter 17, says that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites when they were weary and attacked them from behind, where the women, children, and infirm would have been, where they were unprotected, where they weren't watching for an enemy. Your enemy, the devil, seeking whom he may devour, will always come at you when you're weary. You know this, right? You're frustrated, you've had a long day. I had a, somebody I knew once used to say, I'm going to take a carnal break. <laughs> Anybody here <laughs> ever taken a carnal break? He will always come at you when you are weary. And he's never going to come at you where you've got your guard up. Never. He's not stupid. He's going to come at you from behind. He's going to sneak up on you. He's going to come after your most vulnerable place. Wherever that is, He's coming there. That's where he's going to tempt you. And the stakes are high, dear ones. We cannot afford to treat this lightly. Let me remind you of something else some of you will know. <clears throat> Saul, who was the first king of Israel... This happens 400 years after the battle we talked about in Exodus <clears throat> chapter 17. So for 400 years, the people of Israel has had no, have had no king but God. But, <clears throat> you know, it's a long story. They decided they wanted to be like everybody else in the world, and they asked God for a king, they got Saul. He started off really good, but then he screwed up really bad. I want to tell you about that. God, through the prophet Samuel, said to uh, Saul, I want you to lead your armies, the armies of Israel, against guess who? The Amalekites. And I want you to take them out. I mean take them out. Nobody survives. Not even their animals. God has, look, God has a scorched earth policy when, re when it's regarding this stuff. And you and I, we tend to tolerate a lot of, you know, just the enemy's uh, machinations. God says, I want you to take them out, and I want you to take them out to the bone. Saul uh, was victorious in battle because God gave him the victory, but he saved the best of everything. He saved the king. He saved some, probably it's inferred that he probably saved some of the upper echelon of the you know, people of the Amalekites. He saved the best of their uh, herds and their you know, property. And there, he's having this big uh, victory party, and Samuel, the, the prophet of God, shows up, and he says, so why didn't you do what God said to do? Saul says, well, what do you mean? I did it. Look, I'm victorious. Uh, we, we, we've won a mighty battle against our, our adversaries, the Amalekites. And Samuel says, okay, well, then what's this bleating of sheep that I hear? And Saul finally had to confess, well, you know, they made me do it, that whole thing. 
as a result of his failure to deal ruthlessly with the Amalekites, to deal ruthlessly with the lusts of the flesh, he lost some very important things. He lost his calling. Samuel says to him, you're not going to be king anymore. God is taking that away from you. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a person of calling, but you are. And that's why you're tempted in the first place. That's why the enemy is spending time worrying about you is because you have a calling. You are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. But every time we yield to temptation, we are trading away. Remember how Moses, the tide of the battle, would turn one way or another, depending on how he held up the rod? When you and I, when we yield to temptation, we are giving away something of our calling. Saul also lost his authority. Samuel said to him, I'm giving, God is going to give your authority, the authority he's given you to another. He's talking about David, who would succeed him as king. He traded away his authority. When we are people who are uh, engaging, when we surrender to temptation, to the lust of the flesh, we are giving away something of our authority that God has given us over the adversary. The balance of power is shifting. You think you're just having a carnal break. The power, the authority structure is shifting in the favor of your enemy. Finally, Saul lost his life. It would be, and guess who? It would be an Amalekite that cut off his head one day. Because he failed to deal ruthlessly, as God had required of him uh, with the Amalekites, and an Amalekite was the one who took him out in the end. This is not <clears throat> something to play with. This is serious stuff. But I thank God, and so should you, that we have in the story before us in Exodus chapter 17, three keys to victory. And before we go today, I want to just talk to you about those. In James chapter 4 verse 7, it says this, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In that verse and in this story, we see, uh, recip or we see um, evidenced two of the three things I want to talk to you about right now. Submitting to God and resisting the enemy. When Moses was up on the hill with the rod of God in his hand and his arms raised... He was submitting to God. The symbol of, the, of God's authority is what he's holding. And he was up there saying, God, if you don't come through for us, we're cooked. We're done. There's a battle going on down there, but I know really the battle is right here. I submit unto your lordship and dominion. Dear one, the, the battle against temptation, you know this, I don't need to tell you, can often be fierce. And you can feel like you're a goner. But you're not. You're not. Because the God of all things is on your side. Submit to him. Don't face, the, don't, you know, rear back and, 
your own might and try to deal with this, but call on the name of God, on the name of the Lord. Invite his power to help you to stand firm and in the face of temptation. And that brings us to number two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, the Israelites, they actually had to draw their swords and get into battle. They actually had to fight a battle. The word used in James chapter 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That word resist is not a, a mild word. It's not, shoo. No, it's a word that means I'm planting my feet and I'm not going there. I'm not going to surrender to you. I am not going to accept your counterfeit solution to leg the legitimate needs of my life because there is one who has an appropriate way to meet the needs of my life and he alone is the one that I will surrender to, not you. That's resistance. That's forceful resistance and that's what's called for here. And then the third thing is something we often neglect but it's so powerful. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, confess your trespasses. That means tell somebody when you've stepped outside the lines, when you've stepped into a place where you shouldn't. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, accomplishes much. Moses, his arms got weak and he began to drop the, the rod of God. But he had two men there to help him. They set him on a rock and one took one side, one took the other. And they held that rod up to the end of the day and the battle was won. You and I, we need an Aaron and a Hur in our lives. But here's what happens. When, when we're in the midst of that fierce temptation, most of us isolate. I can think of somebody right now who on three occasions I've talked to is facing a serious, fierce temptation right now in their lives. And on three occasions I've said to them, don't isolate. And yet exa that's exactly what they're doing. And I don't think it's the end of the story by any means, but right now they're losing that battle. Don't fail to take advantage of the Aaron and Hoors in your life. And a bunch of them are sitting right by you today. I don't... I don't have time to tell you the whole story today, but there was a, there was a point of bondage in my life that, that God broke. But the following temptation to return to Egypt was fierce. And, and decades long. And sometimes I didn't hold my ground very well. But one day, I don't even remember why, I, I just, I knew in my heart of hearts, I had to bring Aaron and Hur into the picture. 
Actually, it was just an errand. I didn't have, it was just one guy. <laughs> but I went to a friend of mine and I said to him, I said, this is what I'm facing. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I'm gonna. I yield to this temptation more than I want to. Will you pray with me? Will you stand with me? Will you help me hold the rod of God aloft? He said, yes, I would. And that thing did not just become some sort of, you know, sometimes accountability and accountability groups and so forth, all they do is become a mutual, uh, a, a mutual uh, excuse society, you know. <laughs> we come and we say, hey, you know, I did this this week. Yeah, so did I. And we commiserate and that's it. What is good? What good is that? We need someone who's going to hold our, help us hold our rod up high. And there are people right near you today, people in your life that God would have, and I, I forgot to say, that day that I stopped isolating and invited someone into the battle with me, that was the day that temptation began to fade out of my life. You know, Decades ago, it's not even a temptation anymore. I just feel like, uh, you know, there's some of us today that need to decide. In fact, I think you probably already have in your mind the person you need to talk to. Can I just encourage you to do so? Just simply say, hey, I could use your help. Would you stand with me? Would you pray with me? Let's take this stuff seriously and watch what God can do. This is recording number 11148 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 8, 2015. This is the sixth message in a series titled, The Exit. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, Winning the War Within.